Welcome to our service of worship of the First Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. I, Megan Lecluse, along with Dr. Baron Mullis and our director of music, Andrew Sin, and the choir are glad that you have chosen to join us today. If you have not already had a chance to do so, we invite you to read the letter that you can find on our church website regarding resuming in-person worship. We know that you may have many questions about what the exact protocols will look like, and we promise you that that information will be coming, but as information is coming out on an ongoing basis from the CDC and city guidelines, we will give you that information closer to when we actually do resume. And now let us continue in our service of worship with our call to worship. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders the Lord over the waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. if we say that we have no sin, then the truth is not in us, and we deceive only ourselves. But God, who is merciful and just, has promised to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We will earnestly confess our sins. With such an assurance, there is never any need to fear confession, but only to draw near in candor to our God who has made us, who knows us, 
and who loves us. So let us pray together. For you so loved the world, O God, that you came among us to feel our pain, amplify our joy, and bless our broken stories. For you so loved the world, O God, that you are among us still, calling us by your Spirit to follow in the way of your love. Forgive us when we do not listen, O God, when we forget the love that you have for us and the love we are called to share with one another. Forgive us, three-in-one God, and let your love transform our lives. Amen. As far as the east is from the west, so far does God remove our transgressions from us. So, beloved, believe the promise of the gospel. In Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Isaiah, in the sixth chapter, starting at the first verse. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lofty, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphs were in attendance above him, each had six wings. With two they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet and with two they flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The pivots on the threshold shook at the voices of those who called, and the house filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me. I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Yet my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphs flew to me, 
holding a live coal that had been taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. The seraph touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your guilt has departed and your sin is blotted out. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Have you ever simultaneously felt awe and terror and maybe a sense of fascination as well? I'm a bit of an adrenaline junkie, and if you also like roller coasters, you may have felt this too, standing in line at Six Flags, staring up at King Dakar or some other giant roller coaster, marveling at the mechanics that will safely launch you forward at 128 miles per hour, while holding a little bit of disbelief that you are about to put yourself on this ride and trust that it will work the way it is supposed to. Or maybe you've had the crazy idea of jumping out of a perfectly good airplane with more than butterflies in your stomach, but also being drawn to the idea of free falling, the feeling of rushing through air while finding it hard to breathe, and the overwhelming peace and serenity surrounding you after the parachute opens, floating through silence, taking in nature. Turning to another more down-to-earth example, a few years ago I sat on a beach watching what had to be 10 to 11-foot waves, which were beautiful and terrifying. I watched surfers who I both feared for and was impressed by, because the power of the water was immense, and I was glad to be safely sitting on the sand. Watching those waves was captivating, sitting in the presence of their mighty power and transfixing beauty, the water curving and breaking with rhythm and grace. I think all of these barely begin to scratch the surface of what Isaiah was probably feeling as he experienced this passage of scripture. It's a passage I really like for the call or renewal of call story we find there, and for the interaction that the Lord and the seraphs have with Isaiah. But let's be real, this is also a bizarre passage. Let's think about it and visualize the scene being laid out before us. Isaiah sees God, which, first off, we know that that doesn't happen very often. And either God is huge and takes up most of the space so that the robe borders God, or God has a robe that puts even the train on Princess Diana's wedding dress to shame, because it tells us the hymn fills the room. Then there are these seraphs flying around God, up above God. And who knows what size these creatures are, but they have six wings. And when they speak, the timbers of the building shake and the room fills with smoke. Awe, terror, and fascination. That seems to describe what this experience must have elicited within Isaiah. And maybe a few questions. On Monday, I was talking with a couple of pastor friends about this passage. And we started just rattling off questions about it and the seeming strangeness of it. My first question may not be the most important or even the most appropriate, but in Hebrew, feet is sometimes a euphemism for our reproductive parts. So are the wings covering literal feet or are they covering something else? This leads us to more questions about these seraphs. Like, do they even reproduce? 
Why do they have six wings but only fly with two, which seems highly inefficient? And do they have hands? Or are they more bird-like creatures with just wings and feet? If they don't have hands, what do they use to pick up the tongs that pick up the coal to carry it to Isaiah's mouth? One friend thought that they were fire creatures, and it does seem like other similar time period non-biblical texts and literature seem to refer to them as dragons. But we also wondered about how Dante and Milton have influenced how we visualize these creatures. Oh, and besides the seraphs, what does God look like? We don't get many details on that, any details, but how could you not wonder when in most other passages no one is permitted to see God and live? What did Isaiah think as he beheld this scene? In the innermost section of the temple, known as the Holy of Holies, where, as one commentator puts it, the designs on the Ark of the Covenant come to life before Isaiah's eyes, as the earthly temple and God's heavenly abode become blurred. Isaiah is witnessing God, and it's hard to take in all that is going on here. But that's God, isn't it? It's hard to take in the vastness, the magnitude that constitutes God's very being. Today is Trinity Sunday, which reminds us that God is so beyond our comprehension that it takes us three ways of knowing and experiencing God to try to capture all that God's oneness is. And the reason that I share all those questions with you, that we were asking about the scene in Isaiah, is that I often feel like we need to bring our questions to the Trinity. Because even in asking unanswered questions, our understanding can grow. And we can understand that the Trinity is and can be a hard, set, a hard concept for us to grasp. Some of you may be asking for a reminder on how this whole Trinity thing works. So let me offer a description of the Trinity using that offered by the SALT blog. The ancient doctrine of the Trinity arose out of early Christian reflection on Scripture and their experience with Jesus and the Holy Spirit. For them, encountering Jesus was somehow encountering God directly. And at the same time, Jesus spoke of God as both distinct from him, as when he prayed to God or spoke of God as the one who sent him, and yet nevertheless one with him. There was in some way both a two-ness and a oneness in play. And so Christians sought out ways to express this mystery with poetry and precision. Likewise, the earliest disciples experienced encounters with the Spirit as encounters with God directly. And at the same time, Jesus spoke of the Spirit as a guiding, challenging presence distinct both from him and from the one to whom he prayed. And so arose over time the Church's doctrine of the Trinity, the idea that God is properly conceived as both three and one. Not three gods, for that would miss God's oneness. And not merely one, for that would miss God's threeness. Still, even with helpful explanations, it seems that the Trinity is inherently something we can't fully comprehend. Even while we still profess that God is three in one and one in three, there were multiple days-long church councils early on in the church trying to get to that full comprehension. One writer even calls the Trinity baffling and says that some understand the Trinity to be too vague, esoteric, or downright weird to be of much use in our daily lives. But going back to that thrill-seeker within me, it seems that awe fascination, maybe a little bit of perplexion and a little bit of terror, and a whole lot of mystery 
are what the Trinity should bring forth within us, which we can witness in Isaiah's response to God. Isaiah doesn't run away. He acknowledges his amazement, probably even his confusion, that he, a man who has sinned, who isn't perfect, has seen God and lived, which is, biblically speaking, truly an oddity. I mean, Isaiah could freak out, he could run away, he could ask questions, but instead he names what is happening, even if he doesn't understand it. The seraph brings the coal to his lips and tells him that his sin has been blotted out. And then, in response to God's question, who shall I send, he says, I want in on this. Here I am. Send me on your behalf. And based on what God asks Isaiah to do, I'm pretty sure that it was what he was witnessing that led Isaiah, that compelled him to respond, to join in, and that he didn't know what God was going to ask him to do, because it was a tough request. You can only imagine he was fed, fueled by what he was witnessing in front of his eyes. Some note that this happens in Isaiah 6, which is a weird spot for a call story five chapters into the book, and they therefore see it as more of a renewal of call, of God sending Isaiah out on a new project. Maybe being in the powerful presence of God renews Isaiah and prepares him for the journey ahead. Maybe the renewal of call and being over in God's overwhelming presence go hand in hand. Like the waves on that beach, or anyone who has been to Niagara Falls or another large, powerful waterfall, you may know what it's like to be held by the power you see before you. You don't want to be fully immersed in it, because that seems potentially fatal. But you want to get closer, to feel the mist on your face and hear the roar, Maybe even to see the backside of water. Which, while a really corny joke, it's worth noting that in another text, God allows Moses to see where God's glory has passed, or God's backside. I think of all that water is, too. How it shapes the landscape with its might. And yet water makes up so much of our bodies and sustains all of life. The same is true of God. Jesus even says that he offers us living water. God is like the powerful waterfall that holds and draws us, but can definitely overpower us, but is also in our very bodies, makes up who we are, and sustains us with every breath. One of the things I love about God is that we are invited to bring all of ourselves, including all of our questions, good questions, absurd questions, all of them, our amazement, our sorrow, and our joy. We bring it all to our faith. I remember several years ago having a student who told me that her friend told her that eventually she'd have to stop asking questions and just accept and believe. But that's not true to who we are. We can ask our questions and believe. In fact, since many of the questions may never be answered, faith is about bringing both together and living out our questions. And we can simultaneously not fully understand and ask questions about the Trinity and profess that it is true while being called and sent out by the triune God. We may not be able to fully grasp God, but we can experience God. 
We can have a relationship with God. And the Trinity is of use in our daily lives. The blending of earth and heaven in what Isaiah saw is the blending of earth and heaven that the Trinity offers us. And assurance that God is not up there, far away from us, but is present with us. As the SALT blog puts it, the Trinity's quite practical upshot is to cast a vision of God down here and everywhere, creating, redeeming, and sustaining creation at every turn, with every unfurling leaf and blossom. In short, the doctrine is ultimately about a world saturated with divine presence and a God in whom we live and move and have our being, who is redeeming and sending us, guiding and empowering us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us say together what it is we believe. Church, what do you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. From the goodness of God's hand, we have all that we need. Indeed, God has given us more than we need. So let us worship God with our tithes and our offerings.
Let us pray together. Holy God, what can we give to the one who has given us all? You are the source of all life, all joy, all hope, all goodness. You, the triune God, are the ground of our being. You are the Alpha and the Omega. And even with these things all being true, even still, you gave us yourself. We are grateful. So we offer our gifts as a means of saying thank you. Your greatest desire is that all creation should live together in harmony and redemption. And so it is that we pray for the world that you have created out of the overflowing of your love. For the nations of this world, we pray for leaders who, who will govern with wisdom and compassion, guide those elected through right means to exercise leadership that builds the common life of their people. And for those who govern not through right means, but through coercion and the exercise of dominion, we pray that there would be a softening of the heart, a conviction to attend to the needs of those who suffer. Our prayers for others are always first our prayers for ourselves. And so may those we have elected to govern do so wisely and well, with an eye for what will bring our nation together rather than what will not. Guide our Congress and our President, our judges and our courts. May we see our com in our common life together a concern for grace and goodness. Likewise, we pray for our own city and our neighborhoods. We know that there are those who feel far from home and who feel their work is not valued. Forgive the ways we fray the ties that bind us. Heal those who are wounded and make peace for those whose spirits are unquiet. We pray for the victims of violence in this world, both gun violence and violence of any form. We pray for those for whom it is easy for us to walk past on the streets without giving a thought to their condition and welfare. Open our eyes, O Lord, that we might indeed show forth your praise. We pray to that end for the church, for those you have called to be the light to the world, for the church universal, the Presbyterian church, and indeed the first Presbyterian church. We pray that we will be places of deep and abiding grace. Fill our own spirits that we may bear with the poor and the marginalized, all who are lonely and those who suffer from mental and emotional illness. May we always be the repairers of the breach that you have called us to be. These and all of our prayers we offer in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we continue for his sake with the words he taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.
I think about Isaiah and what he must have felt, and I hope that that is what we feel as we experience the Trinity. Captivated and overwhelmed by the triune God's magnitude, fascinated, probably asking a whole bunch of questions, and yet filled and fueled and longing to be a part of it. So as you go, may you go with the love of God, our Creator, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the communion of the Holy Spirit. May they be with you and abide with you this day and forever. Amen.